the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business. This is Wednesday, December 7th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be looking at the ESRI's claim that a common corporate tax base would damage investment flows into Ireland. And later in the show, we'll be examining plans by Norwegian Airlines to operate transatlantic flights from Ireland. We'll be hearing from the company on its plans and from the head of the Irish Pilots Union as to why it has opposed the move to date. Don't forget you can download Inside Business for free from iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. But first to the ESRI's latest economic outlook. It has warned that the introduction of a common corporate tax base would damage investment flows into Ireland. Mark Paul, you wrote the story uh, this week. Mark Paul, our business affairs correspondent, joins me in studio along with uh, economist Jim Parr. And we're joined on the phone by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Uh, Mark, I'll just come to you first. Uh, what's the background to this? Uh, well, the ESRI on Monday morning uh, uh, released one of the regular uh, economic outlooks, but it was the first time they'd use a new modelling system called Cosmo, um, which isn't quite as sexy as it sounds. It's fantastic. It's, um, it's the core structural model, but it, it takes into account certain factors that it didn't take account in, in, in their modelling before in relation to, for, for example, financial, uh, you know, the, the balance sheets of big IFSC organisations and the potential for shocks to the economy. And um, it allows them to model in, in, you know, in the case of external shocks to the Irish economy and, and the impact that it might have. And they went through a couple of different scenarios around hard Brexit, and but one of them was around the CCC TB, the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base, um, which is you know, basically a, 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 a common basis upon which to apply it's, corporate tax. It sounds tax. like a GA disciplinary body. Yeah, 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 something like that. Well, uh, it, it probably would feel that way for the Irish, I'm sure. It would be more um, effective. Yeah, but but they, so they projected what might happen to the Irish economy if mm. a CCCTB was introduced, mm. uh, and they said that um, you know it would it would you know pretty much immediately knock one point five percent off Irish economic output. Um, Irish corporation tax receipts would drop by five point five percent a year. Uh, FDI flows into Ireland would drop by about five percent a year, uh, and basically that it would be it, it would be all round bad for the Irish economy. And the Irish government have fought against this um, for years, um, and they see it as sort of a form of tax harmonisation by the back door and. Uh, in the SRI's report, they pointed out that if a CCCTB was introduced, um, that France's uh, the, the corporation tax receipts of France will go up by six percent. Mm. Uh, France, of course, has been one of the countries really pushing for this, and Ireland, for obvious reasons, has been one of the countries pushing hard against it. Um, so I suppose it, it really puts some flesh in the bones of the, of the government's argument at a European level that if uh, a common consolidated corporate tax base is introduced uh, across Europe, um, that Ireland would really be slapped down uh, for the betterment of some of the bigger countries. Uh, and uh, yeah. and and it, you know it, it gives weight to the government's argument. I think, Jim, would you concur with the SRI's analysis? Uh, yeah, I would actually. Um, I, I think. I mean, we've heard a lot of talk about Trump's corporate tax plans, thirty-five to fifteen percent. We've heard a lot of talk about the Apple state aid ruling that's been appealed by the Irish government at the moment. But I think, at a more fundamental level, you know, if you look at the OECD and the EU agenda, um, it is and will over the next day, decade be to ensure that corporations pay corporation tax in the country where the economic activity is actually generated. Um, I have to say personally, I think it's a good thing uh, because I, I think some of the tax structures that Ireland has created over the last few years have basically given the corporate world a very bad name and have given Ireland a very bad name. So I, I think from a point of view of global equity, I think this is a positive development. It will pose significant challenges yeah. to Ireland. And how do we react to those challenges? We react by making sure that we compete for foreign direct investment 
on other factors other than just a very dubious tax structure. Um, and I'd be talking about infrastructure, I'd be talking about quality public services, I'd be talking about cost base, obviously, and most importantly, the quality of the workforce we have here. Um, I think that is the future, and I think it's where we have to go. And it is definitely a big, big challenge for a country like Ireland that has such a dependence on foreign direct investment. But at the end of the day, um, US companies servicing the European market will want a base in Europe, particularly if Trump drives his protectionist agenda. Uh, US companies servicing the Asian market will need a presence in the Asian market. So this is not the end of the world for Ireland, but it does pose a new challenge for us. Well, we might actually see a situation whereby US companies, pay, or any foreign company based in Ireland, might actually pay the headline 12.5% rate um, that we all supposed they were paying when, in fact, they were yes. paying much less. Yes, uh, and I think that would be no bad thing. I mean, if you have a 12.5% corporation tax rate, you need to make sure that as much of that as possible is paid. And uh, as I say, it, regardless of what we think about it, mm. whether it's right or wrong, yeah. it is being driven at an OECD level and will definitely dominate the whole corporate tax environment for the next decade at least. And we need to be able to respond to that. Yeah, Mind you, Suzanne, um, bring you in here. It's probably fair to say that all the European countries are up to this, isn't it? I mean, uh, the French uh, don't seem to be charging the, the full rate for a lot of companies. The, the effective tax rate that a lot of companies enjoy in France is a lot lower than the headline rates. Yeah, that's been the argument from the Irish government for some time. Um, but, I mean, I think the mood music has changed across Europe on this. Um, one of the issues with the CCCTB, this has been in the um, pipeline for many years, and it was proposed officially back in 2011, but basically failed to garner su sufficient support from member states. And it was not just Ireland, it was other member states as well, even Germany, etc., this time around, though, I think the international context has changed. Um, voters in a lot of countries like France, Germany and even the Netherlands um, want to see more tax justice. And you'll find it very hard to, to hear a finance minister uh, criticising any proposals now uh, that seeks to uh, clamp down on aggressive tax planning. In saying that, uh, there is uh, one advantage for Ireland in this. Unlike, for example, the competition judgment against Apple, that was taken by the European Competition Division and it's basically a unanimous decision, which obviously Ireland is now appealing in the courts. But once that was decided, it was decided. The CCCTB is a tax measure and that means that all member states have to negotiate this and effectively countries will have a veto on this. So Ireland is going to be involved in the negotiation around CCCTB and like all EU laws, this is going to take ages to kind of come to fruition so Ireland will be able to shape the CCCT proposal as it goes along. So I think that's why there's not too much of a panic yet at government level. And Michael Noonan was in Brussels this week for meetings and he was asked about the CCCTB. He seemed uh, fairly relaxed about it. He mentioned, for example, that Malta is taking over the rotating presidency of the EU in January for six months. And he has he has a sense, he said, that it's not going to be priority for that country. Malta, for example, will be quite supportive of Ireland on a lot of tax issues. Uh, so, you know, the game isn't over yet. The CCCTB proposal has just been proposed by the Commission. It's got a few years to run yet. So we will have to wait and see on what the actual final uh, proposal will be. And we're talking a, a few more years before it actually uh, comes into law. Yeah, Jim, um, I suppose Britain was a handy ally in the EU in terms of uh, corporate tax. Yeah, I suppose what Susanna's saying there is reflecting what I said a few minutes ago, that this is a sort of a 10 year yeah. plus project. You know, it's a long term issue that we will have to deal with and we can shape it. There's no doubt about that. Um, one of the we've heard an awful lot of talk about Brexit and the impact of Brexit. I have argued from the word go 
that one of the real downsides for Ireland is that we would lose a very sensible ally around the EU table. You know, a country that believes that the tax system is a national competency rather than something that should be dictated Mm. by Europe. So I think definitely we will be left more exposed by the exit of Britain. But I also think that at a more fundamental global level, and, and, you know, you mentioned that voters are, or Suzanne mentioned that voters are sort of reflecting this around Europe at the moment. I mean, the fact is, if you look at the demographics of Europe, if you look at the increased pressure that's going to come on health, um, pensions, expenditure in those areas, where are the revenues going to come from? So I, I, I think whatever way we look at it, there will be a huge effort made to make sure that corporations pay more tax into the European coffers. Okay, Mark, um, there were other elements to the ESRI report uh, as well. I mean, they're talking about the economy growing by expanding by 3% annually over the medium term. Um, They're suggesting that there will be an increase in demand for housing from about 24,000 units annually to 30,000 by 2024, which uh, isn't very helpful when you consider the shortage we have at the minute. And he also examined the impact of Brexit on the Irish economy over a a 10-year period. Yeah, Brexit, they said, would knock about um, 3.8% of Irish economic output after 10 years. But on the flip side, um, that that over that 10 years, that you'd probably get about a 22 billion euro boost mm. to foreign direct investment. So Brexit, a hard Brexit, would be a, would be a double-sided coin for Ireland. In the main, in the whole, it would obviously be a bad thing uh, for our own trade um, with the UK. But one of the more interesting aspects of the ESRI's report, I thought, was, was what they had to say on housing. I mean, as you mentioned, they said that by 2024, you'd have demand for 30,000 new houses a year. Now, this would, they said, um, um, uh, bring about a need for mortgage lending of about an extra 50 billion a year. And they said Irish banks just simply will not be able to uh, to fill that gap. Basically, there will be mortgage rationing, uh, a sort of a mortgage famine in Ireland. That's not, not too uh, OTT a word to use. Um, and you know, Sorry, Mark, it, just go back to that figure. You, they're suggesting that we will need how much in new mortgage lending? About 50 billion. Five a year? No, no, not oh, no, in not, total. In, oh, in, yes. in, over the period, yeah, in, yeah, in, in, yeah, in yeah. total, over the period. Sorry, yeah, not per year. Not, not per year. I mean, I mean, house prices are rising fast, but they're not rising that fast. Yeah. But fifty billion over the period, um, and they said that Irish banks just simply won't be able to find that sort of money. So you're left with two. Um, in the past, they, they won't be able to cover it with deposits. They said, and now in the past, before the crash, uh, 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 you know, ten years ago, Irish banks used to fill that gap with sort of liquidity uh, lending from interbank, uh, uh, the sort of interbank lending market, and that's what got the banks into trouble. Um, so they said. There's two options for them. The first one will be to issue a sort of a new type of covered bond. Um, but the second one will be to sort of entice foreign banks back into Ireland. Because as we know, Bank of Scotland Ireland has left the market. Um, mm. Danske Bank has left the market. And, you know, you're left with AIB and, and, and Bank of mm. Ireland. Well, we and do Ulster. have two foreign banks, KBC, Bank Ireland, and Ulster Bank, which is obviously a subsidiary of, of RBS. Uh, both small banks, I suppose, in, in an Irish context. Jim, I might get you to uh, jump in here because I suppose the one element that they weren't able to cover off in their report was uh, the sort of geopolitical issues. Uh, we had a couple of big votes in Europe uh, at the weekend in Austria and the constitutional reform in, in Italy where Matteo Renzi, the Prime Minister, suffered a, a fairly crushing defeat and that has huge implications for the Italian banks. Yes, it, it has. Um, the Italy has been the sick man of Europe for a long, long time and its banking system particularly has been the sick man of European banking and that was highlighted by the um, European Banking Association stress tests during the summer when a few Italian banks were, along with AIB, were deemed the most exposed banks in Europe to a, um, a negative economic shock of pretty significant magnitude. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, what happened at the weekend in Italy really um, postpones at least 
uh, and perhaps abolishes the possibility uh, that Italy's structural problems and its banking problems will ever be addressed properly. So um, that when we have the election, not if in Italy, um, if we get radical forces coming into power, um, I think it just poses a huge source of instability for the whole Italian economy for the Italian banking system and by implication mm. for the whole European Union project. So I think Italy sets a very, very nervous um, agenda as we move into 2017. And then that agenda will be added to by elections in the Netherlands, in Germany and in France, Okay, where you have the possibility of strong anti-EU forces gaining more power. Um, the opinion polls are obviously suggesting that Marine Le Pen uh, mm. won't win the presidency, uh, but we all know what opinion yeah, polls have been like. Have a great track record this year. So I, I think politics pose huge problems for the whole Eurozone yeah. and EU stability in 2017. Suzanne, the Irish economist Ed McWilliams is suggesting there could be another Euro crisis in 2017. Uh, are you picking up that vibe in Brussels? Well, I mean, there were there are a lot of concerns here this week about the state of the Italian banks. Um, the timing of the referendum on Sunday couldn't be worse uh, because Monte di Pace, the, the Italy's third largest bank, was right in the middle of a sensitive uh, capital raising project um, trying to convince convince investors essentially to swap bonds for equity. That, that now looks like it's going to be derailed and some kind of a government a recap or even a bailout. There was a report today in La Stampa, the Italian newspaper, uh, that the Italian authorities were prepared to seek a 15 billion euro bailout from the ESM fund. Now, that has been uh, refuted by, by Rome and by the ESM fund. Um, but we probably are looking at some kind of a, of a government um, taxpayers bailout of some kind for this bank. Now, what's complicated this time around is that there are new EU bail-in rules that came in after the crisis. People remember all the talk about banking union mm. and trying to, to, um, to strengthen the whole uh, financial infra- infrastructure in the Eurozone after the crisis. But under those rules. Um, essentially, they try to break this link between sovereign, um, the sovereign and banking debt. And um, governments are essentially prohibited from uh, putting in money to banks unless creditors, including unsecured depositors, are bailed in. So this is a huge problem um, because a lot of uh, smaller, ordinary retail investors actually bought uh, bank uh, kind of risky bond investments. Uh, so they would be potentially in line uh, to be bailed in and any kind of a restructuring. So there's already been tensions between Italy and the European Commission on this, that they all kind of surface around the summer ahead of those banking stress tests. So now discussions are underway to try and get around those rules, essentially, in some way. Um, now, it looks like something will be done for Italy. But of course, you know, you're into a broader issue then that the very rules that were set up to try and uh, solve the banking crisis, the first pump in the road they come to, they, they're unravelled, if you like. Uh, the other thing, of course, this week is that the ECB is meeting on Thursday. They had been expected to discuss maybe tapering the quantitative easing programme that was launched in March 2015. That now looks unlikely. But if they do signal that they'll extend that, that's going to annoy Germany in particular because they've already been uncomfortable about the ECB's bond buying programme. They believe that maybe it's propping up countries like Italy that really should be reforming themselves. You know, so I think there's a lot of tensions 
between the ECB, between um, Germany, um, and real fears now about uh, the state of the Italian banks, but there is a sense that something has to be done yeah. within the next week, if you like, Jim, it's a bit uh, for depressing. this particular bank. Jim Parr, it's a bit depressing that uh, more than eight years on from the crash, um, we're still talking about crisis uh, across Europe, isn't it? Yes, it is, because they haven't effectively addressed the crisis. I mean, we're still talking about how you deal a resolution mechanisms for banks that get into trouble, and Europe still hasn't reached agreement on how that should be done. Um, you know, we had the debacle here in this country, we had the debacle in Cyprus, um, and it's ongoing that there's still no clear way of dealing with um, bank resolution as an issue. Mm. Uh, but the other, I suppose, more fundamental issue is that despite years of rock bottom interest rates, um, a very significant quantitative easing program in the euro area, we're still looking at a eurozone economy, albeit over the last month, a lot of economic indicators have started to look a little bit healthier. It's all relative. Uh, the European economy is basically growing way below potential. And um, policymakers are struggling to reignite growth because economic growth is what would solve a lot of these problems, but it's not happening. So that's why I think um, Europe should take a leaf from Donald Trump's economic textbook. Um, Controversial. And that is a capital investment program. I mean, I think... Just come in there, Jim. Yes, Suzanne. You're you're absolutely... Yeah, no, you're, you're right on that. I mean, I think what's interesting, um, in the last month, we saw the Commission coming out with this proposal for a new fiscal stance, they called it, this idea of expa- fiscal expansion. They've called for fiscal expansion of 0.5% next year. And I think you're right there, Jim, you know, there's a sense in Europe that they're behind the curve in terms of investment, particularly if we're going to see uh, this kind of new economic policy coming from Washington, uh, that, you know, the European Union needs to change this policy of of austerity, this orthodoxy, if you like, that's been there uh since since the um, since the crisis, so I think you're right that we could see a kind of a change. Hopefully, some would argue uh, in the next year about how the EU uh, is looking at its economic policy. Yeah, I think I think that the challenge, Suzanne, is that you know Germany is 30 percent of the euro area caused the shots, uh, mm-hmm. and Germany is still the country that is most wedded to austerity. You know, with this notion that yeah. Germany should never again run a budget deficit, basically, um, and for the largest economy in the economic bloc to take that sort of very austere stance on the fiscal side yeah. is just not going to work. And all of this is an unhelpful backdrop for a potential uh, IPO of AIB next year, Jim, isn't it? I mean, what, what do you think are it, the chances of an AIB It certainly IPO? is. Um, I, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult. Uh, the Italian banking crisis that we've discussed, uh, the ongoing fragility of a lot of other European banks, it's not just the Italians, a lot of others with difficulties. Um, depending on the European political environment, you know, we, we may end up in a situation where all three very important elections next year turn out the right way, in which case uh, mm. this political instability will not actually materialise. So in those set of circumstances, you could see um, AIB getting off. But I think it'll be a very, very challenging environment and I wouldn't be betting my bottom dollar on it at the moment. OK, Mark, I'm going to come back to you because uh, you were at the Independent News and Media, EGM, earlier this week, which was considering uh, a capital restructure, if you like, uh, for the company. But it, it really got taken over by uh, events of recent weeks, uh, controversy around the pension scheme, changes to the pension scheme, and also uh, a bid or a, a putative bid for Newstock, which is owned by Dennis O'Brien, who happens to be the largest shareholder in INN. 
Um, just uh, give, give us a little bit about the colour on that. Yeah, basically outside the the, the, the extraordinary general meeting uh, was held outside uh, in the Alexander Hotel in Dublin. Outside uh, the hotel, you had about 150 uh, uh, pensioners or deferred members of the pension scheme who were going to have their pensions absolutely hammered. But what INM is proposing to do, and then inside down in the in the basement in the building, um, they held the EGM, um, which was ostensibly to approve a sort of a capital restructuring that would allow the company to start repaying dividends. But what it really turned into was a bun fight between Leslie Buckley, the chairman, and the shareholders on the floor who were giving out about the pension scheme. They were giving out about the corporate governance around um, news talk, uh, a proposed news talk deal. And, and what was most interesting was that Leslie Buckley had to sit, of course, right next to uh, uh, Robert Pitt, um, the chief executive with whom the company has publicly acknowledged uh, that, uh, that there's a row going on over this uh, news talk thing. It was like, uh, the sense of it, it was like looking at a, a sort of a soon-to-be-divorced couple sort of making one last public outing at a, at a family gathering or something like that. Everybody knew what was going to happen. They were, they were putting on a smile and all the rest of it and they were uh, pretending maybe to... to, 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 to so to is like, there a divorce in the offing, do you think? Is there a divorce? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a judicial separation first, we'll see. But um, um, it's, it's difficult to see how the status quo in general in the company mm. can remain. And what about the pensioners? Are they likely to get any concession before uh, this is resolved? Well, but before the EGM, there, you know, there was a sense that this was done and dusted. The, the pensioners seemed to be told that this was done and dusted. But Leslie Buckley seemed to leave the door slightly ajar in the EGM for a backtrack when he said, I can't answer any questions on that because we're still in talks with the trustees. Now, if you're still in talks with people, that implies the whole thing isn't done and dusted. Whether he's just trying to take the heat out of the situation or whether they might generally do some sort of, you know, some sort of a, maybe not quite a U-turn, but uh, some sort of a backtrack on, on, on the extent of the damage to those uh, to those pensions. Um, um, it will be unusual, I think, for uh, uh, for a company with Leslie Buckley as chairman to do a U-turn like that. Mm. Um, he's not known for uh, for changing mm. his mind, um, but um, the, the heat that has come upon the company and, and the public pressure that is brought on and, and the questions as to why the shareholders in INM uh, are so desperate to sort of get dividends out of the company um, has probably hasn't been something they've welcomed. All right, we'll leave it there. Mark Paul, uh, Jim Parr and Suzanne Lynch, uh, thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now. When we return, we'll be discussing Norwegian Air International's plans to fly transatlantic from Ireland and why Irish pilots are so opposed to this move. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. Uh, late last week, US authorities gave Norwegian Air International clearance to operate routes from Ireland to the United States. This comes amid opposition from pilots on both sides of the Atlantic. And to discuss this with me, I'm joined in studio by Evan Cullen, head of the Irish Airline Pilots Association, by Barry Halloran, business reporter with the Irish Times, who covers our aviation industry, and by Stuart Buss, who's head of communications in the UK for Norwegian. Uh, Barry, I might start with you. You might just give us the backdrop to this story. It's been, uh, it's been a long-running story, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. It's been running for uh, more than two and a half years now. Um, Norwegian Air International, which is a subsidiary of Norwegian, uh, set up shop in uh, the Republic in early 2014 and was licensed by uh, the Irish Aviation Authority, making it an an EU airline per se. Um, It then sought a what's called a foreign air carrier's permit from the United States Department of Transportation. The logic being we are an airline registered in the Republic of Ireland, therefore we are covered by uh, EU-US 
aviation treaties, which allow basically free access. It's called open skies, isn't it? Yes, yeah, called open skies. This allows uh, free, free access to each other's airspace. Uh, in other words, any EU airline can, can theoretically at least fly from any point in the EU to the US. But in order to do that, they have to get the foreign air carrier's permit. There was a good deal of opposition to the application and it took two and a half years for it to finally be processed and for the DOT to finally approve uh, the application, which it did at the, uh, in and around close of business US time on Friday. So that now potentially paves the way for uh, Norwegian Air International to launch flights from Cork and Shannon to Boston. But the bigger picture here is that uh, Norwegian essentially wants to establish a network of low-cost transatlantic flights from the EU in general to to the US. And that's really the that, that that's really the prize that they're after. The the Irish thing I think is put Stuart may want to correct me on this, but I've always felt that the, the Irish side of this was maybe a little bit of a sideshow from from their point of view and that they're, they're after the much bigger prizes, the London's the London's and the, the, the Paris's to New York and Miami and so forth. I think that's pretty much what they're going for. Okay. Stuart, I might bring you in at this point. Um, why did Norwegian choose Ireland as its uh, EU base? Um, well, it's a fairly simple answer, and it's probably quite a topical one given the current political climate. The simple fact is we're, we're a, a Norway-based company, but Norway is not in the EU. So the uh, Ireland subsidiary was set up purely to give us a foothold in the EU. And um, I understand Barry's points, and I think he's, he's probably almost correct, but it's, it's not true to say we don't have Ireland as a focus. It's long been our intention to launch transatlantic routes from Cork, from Shannon, potentially from other Irish airports in future. Now that we have uh, that permit in place after you know, a long three-year battle, one of the first things we've done you know, just in the last couple of days is announce our, uh, the, the next steps for us to launch those those much-awaited routes from Cork and from Shannon, and as I say, potentially um, other Irish airports in future. I think the other thing I'd, I'd, I'd throw in here, um, there has been opposition. I think, you know, I completely understand that, but there has also been huge, huge support on both sides of the Atlantic for what we're trying to do, and that's come from the Irish government, from the Irish Aviation Authority, from airlines, airports, business groups, travel groups. Um, so uh, even the European Union, who, as we know, um, threatened uh, arbitration action against their US counterparts. So there's huge support in what we're trying to do. We've now got yeah. the green light and our focus is on... on and when, when do you expect these first route. flights to take off? Um, well, we expect the flights to take off from Cork and Shannon next summer. Um, we're now working on the schedules, affairs, those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, by next summer, we, we expect those planes to be in the air. And I've seen fares uh, of as low as $69 being quoted for your opening flights. It hardly seems credible that you can uh, um, transport people from Ireland to the US by plane uh, for just for as little as that. Yeah, it's entirely, entirely credible, entirely doable. Um, I think one of the, the big factors in this is next summer uh, or mid-next year, we take delivery of the uh, Boeing 737 MAX aircraft. with a European launch customer for that brand new aircraft. And modern aircraft make these types of routes uh, possible. Um, and that means we can, we can generate some, some truly groundbreaking fares. So, you know, we're excited to launch the routes, but we're also excited to offer them a price that means as many people as possible can, can travel. Yeah. Evan Cullen, bring you in now. Um, IALPA has been opposed to this move, hasn't it? I mean, pilots on both sides of the Atlantic, I think it's fair to say, uh, have been opposed to this move. Just explain to us why. Well, uh, Irish, uh, the Irish Airline Pilots Association are not opposed to direct flights from Cork, Shannon or Knock into the US and never have been. No, but they're opposed uh, to what just, the Norwegian is planning. Yeah, uh, what we're opposed to, what we're opposed to is the use of Asian contracted crew on those flights. 
that's what we're opposed to. I have no problem with Norwegian advertising 69 euro from Cork to Boston. Uh, that doesn't cause me a difficulty. I do have a problem if the people working on that airplane are on Asian contract conditions. That's not fair. It's unfair to those people on the aircraft, and it's unfair to those of us who have to live and work in Ireland to have to compete with that. That's what's unfair. We absolutely support uh, the more direct flights, low cost, any kind of flights from the island of Ireland into the US. The issue has always been the nature and the jurisdiction of the contract of employment. And I'm sorry I have to keep repeating this because some journalists never get this into their head. It doesn't matter the citizenship. It doesn't matter the base. It matters the jurisdiction of the employment contract. All right, I might bring Stuart in at this point. Stuart, is it correct that uh, the jurisdiction of the contract for these pilots is actually going to be based in Asia? It's not, and it never has been over the last two or three years. Um, and I think, you know, much like Evan, I feel like I'm repeating the same thing. Uh, over and over. Let, let me just state a couple of clear facts. So Norwegian Air International, our Irish subsidiary, the subsidiary that we intend to launch these transatlantic routes with, uh, that has now got the, the US permit. So N Norwegian Air International has aircraft operating from eight European bases. We have 400 pilots and we have 900 cabin crew. They're all on European contracts of employment. They're all in European bases. NIE does not have a single Asian-based crew member nor any crew members on Asian contracts. Um, we so just to be clear, the, the pilots who will fly these aircraft from Ireland to the United States, uh, will, they, will they be Irish, first of all? Um, well, we have uh, pilots in European bases, so they will be European or they will be American. Uh, I think okay. the other announcement we made immediately after the DOT decision was to say that we would set up two new crew and pilot bases in America. So they'll either be from our new uh, American bases or they'll be from our existing European bases. And in terms of um, the, the... So there will be pilots based in Ireland, just to be clear. Not, not initially, no. I mean, we base our pilots at the, the cities or the destinations where we have most traffic. So London, Barcelona, Madrid, parts of Scandinavia, um, and then in America, places like Fort Lauderdale in Florida and New York. Clearly... And where will these pilots pay their taxes, essentially? They'll, they'll pay the, the taxes and, the, and their uh, records of employment will be uh, on based on the, the base that they're in. So if they're in London, they're obviously subject to UK employment law. In Oslo, Scandinavian employment okay. law. New York, then America. So just, just to be clear, somebody will wake up in London one morning, will fly from London to, let's say, Cork, uh, and will then pilot a plane from Cork to, let's say, New York. And uh, I don't know whether, I presume they'll stay over uh, for maybe a night or two nights and then they'll fly back um, to Cork and then they'll go home to London. Is that, is that how it works? Um, well, broadly, I mean, you're talking in quite broad brushstrokes. I think one of the things, as I say, we announced was two new American bases uh, on the back of the DOT decision. I think probably the most likely scenario is that those new pilots in those new bases in America um, will fly the routes to, to Cork, to Shannon, and indeed other European airports that we're looking at. Um, and then, you know, uh, they, they'll, then they'll fly them back. So uh, the, the point we've made that there was absolutely, under the Open Skies Agreement, there's absolutely no requirement for us to talk about the crew that we're going to use. Even so, we volunteer, voluntarily declared that we'd only use uh, US or European crew on those flights. And then I think, yeah, you know, I, I, if I, I, I could get sorry, in here at some uh, stage, Evan is, Evan, fair, is, Evan is shaking his head here, uh, Stuart, while, 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 while you've been saying it, that. Where, where is it may be correct to say that Norwegian Air International, which is the subsidiary, the Irish subsidiary of the Norwegian group, does not currently employ people on Asian contracts. The fact is, is that within the Norwegian group, which is a 
an enormous group of numerous companies. It includes Norwegian Air Shuttle, Norwegian Air UK, Norwegian uh, Atlantic. Uh, I, I forget, there's so many of them. And Norwegian Air International is just one Irish subsidiary. They do employ people on Asian contracts. And can I also say, Kieran, that you fell into the trap there in that discussion because you talked about bases. Like, there are Irish pilots based in London on Chinese contracts of employment. And the other factor fly in all of this... Fly oh, sorry? Fly they would fly for, for Chinese airlines. But the other factor in this is that Norwegian is unapologetic about the use of a recruitment agency called OSM. OSM provides crew to the maritime industry. It provides crew from Vietnam and Bangladesh. That's how they keep the price and the the labour costs on the ships so cheap. So this is what the development is. And the other part of this is that I met with the CEO of Norwegian Air International and he told me it was a requirement of his employment model that he could use Asian contracted crew on these routes. It was a requirement for the model to work. The last part of it was, and Barry will testify to this, because Barry got a copy of the letter. We sent... Uh, Norwegian well, Air International. Well, let Barry testify to it. Yeah, well, well it testified. is true because people are very slow to come out with the facts on this. The we, the we sent Norwegian Air International, the CEO, a letter saying if he made a declaration to the Department of Transport in the US, and it had to be on the record, it can't be just promises to politicians, it had to be on the record, that if they employed people on EU or US employment contracts, regardless of their nationality of their base, then we would withdraw our objections in, in, on the US DOT docket. And they never did that. In fact, they never they confirmed that they got the letter, but they never replied to the letter. Yeah, Stuart, why didn't you reply to that letter? Well, the process we've gone through is with the U.S. Depo- Department of Transportation. They're, 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 they're the people we've been speaking to endlessly for the last three years on this. They're the people we've made the promises to. And they're the people who ultimately have awarded this, this permit. And let's be clear, that's been ratified by the U.S. Department of Transport, the Department of Justice, the Department mm-hmm. of State, the European Union, the Irish government. Indeed, our UK application has been backed by the UK government. So with all due respect to, to Evan Cullen and, and to IALPA, and I completely respect their, their right to an opinion on this, but the process we've gone through is with the US authorities, and they've now approved it. So our focus now is on getting those, those flights off the ground and, and planning those much-needed new routes from Cork and from Shannon. Right. Evan, does it, I mean, you know, to the punters, um, let's say they want the best uh, value fares from Ireland to the United States. And to them, this whole argument about whether people are on Asian contracts or European Union contracts is kind of lost. Yeah, no, and I can understand that. And that's uh, perfectly understanding. But we have to take just a broader picture. Um, If you take the Irish government policy uh, lately, uh, an example of this was Ethiopian Airlines were incentivized by the Irish government through various waivers and, and grants to the tune of two and a half million of taxpayers' money to establish a route between Dublin and Los Angeles to directly compete with Aer Lingus. Now, people may say that was a good idea, but the only problem I have with that is that people who work in Ethiopian Airlines and Ethiopian Airlines themselves don't have the costs of living in the EU saddled on their employer or their... They don't pay our social charges, they don't pay our rents in Dublin, they don't pay our taxes... Uh, and yet we're expected to compete with them on a, a seat for seat, euro for euro, you know, dollar for dollar footing. And that's unfair. That's as if putting a sweatshop 
mm-hmm. from Ethiopia, right in the middle of Dublin, and saying, in this factory, mm-hmm. people will operate on Ethiopian working conditions. Okay. And we and everybody else has to compete with that. That's the issue. Well, funnily enough, I mean, Ireland Linda said presumably are going to have to compete with them. And Stephen Cavanagh, the chief executive, has voiced his support for Norwegian's bid. Um, Michael O'Leary, who I, I appreciate you might not be a fan of, Evan, um, he's also uh, no, you're wrong. Actually, uh, okay. actually, Michael O'Leary has done a lot of things that are very positive in the, you know, uh, and he's pointed out of a lot of things that are wrong in Irish aviation. Okay, so. well, he supports the plan as well. He says uh, technically we have the US uh, Europe Open Skies Agreement. Yet Norwegian are utterly shamefully being blocked, mainly by the lobbying activity of the pilots' union on this side and the American pilots' union in the states, using the current elections as a mean a means of forcing the US State Department or whoever it is to not license Norwegian to fly. Yeah, well, I can understand why any company such as Ryanair or Aer Lingus would welcome into the market something that's going to help them drive down their costs. I just come back to the mere issue that everybody should be listening to, is that if you're a worker in this state, just like the people in Irish independent newspapers who've lost their pensions, the where we're going with this, where our own politicians are supporting are supporting an unravelling of the social fabric by introducing this kind of unfair cost base into the economy mm. and it's coming in through aviation is unfair. That's the point we're making. Yeah. Barry, I suppose the fine line between um, supporting uh, labour terms and conditions uh, in the airline industry and also supporting tourism and clearly low fares from Ireland to the US uh, by the likes of Norwegian or whoever uh, potentially supports Irish tourism and we have a, had a slew of bodies coming out uh, in favour of, of these routes from Cork and Shannon and elsewhere. Yeah, we have had a, a quite, quite a slew of bodies. A lot of them are, are local interest bodies who you would, uh, you know, who you would expect to, to, to welcome these things in, in virtually uh, virtually any circumstances whatsoever. What, what I think we, I suppose, the, the proof of this particular pudding will be in the eating. I'm, I would have to say that I, I'm slightly sceptical about whether boat routes would actually work. One or other might work, and I would I would assume that in order to ensure that they're viable, that they will have to drum up more business on the US side of the of the pair rather than on the Irish side. You've got to look at Cork and Shannon's position. They're they're very they're about an hour an hour and a half drive away from each other. They have overlapping geographical franchises. Um, if you were to build an airport tomorrow, you probably wouldn't put one in Shannon. However, it, it, largely by the dint of you know Shannon's own, I think resilience and perseverance, they've managed to stay in, stay in there, and stay in business. But nonetheless, um, I think Cork has a. If Cork has any history at all in transatlantic flight, it's 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 been very mixed, and clearly nothing has worked to date. And I think it remains to be seen whether this will work. Yeah, um, Stuart, how many jobs will actually be based in Ireland? Uh, people working for Norwegian, working and living in Ireland, working for Norwegian. Well, for our Irish subsidiary, we always have we already have a, a, our headquarters at Dublin. There's uh, about eighty to one hundred staff based there. As I say, the, in terms of crew and pilots, our bases are always in the cities where we have most routes crossing over. So you know, London and, and, and parts of Spain, and, and, and obviously in America as well. As we grow in Ireland, that may well change. We may, may well look at crew, crew bases there. But, I mean, I think the, the broader picture, and I think it's been touched on briefly by Barry there, is, you know, flights between the U.S. and Ireland aren't just about people in the air. They're actually it's people on the ground as well. And there's going to be huge opportunities there in tourism, in hospitality, in business. Um, we already know, obviously, the, the, the links between um, the Irish communities in America who may want to visit uh, relatives and, and family and friends and so on. Uh, the huge tourism opportunities in Ireland. 
Um, and then, you know, the, the, the businesses, uh, you know, as you, yeah. you'll know, there's, there's some... Uh, where, where exactly are you going to be flying from? Because so. I, I, I've uh, seen a report saying that you're going to go to Stuart International, which has been described as close to New York. I've never heard of Stuart International, I have to confess. So maybe you can just give us an example of where you're going to be flying to. Well, we're looking at um, three or four different airports around the, the Boston and the, the New York areas. One of the reasons that we're considering uh, secondary airports in America is that's what helps us uh, keep those fares truly uh, groundbreaking. Um, so, you know, you, you'll have seen the reports and you mentioned it yourself, $69. If we fly into a primary airport, a JFK or a Logan, those fares are unachievable. Um, so we do fly into those airports already from, from London and other cities. But if we want to make these fares as achievable and as affordable as possible, secondary airports, which are very well connected to the major cities, are one way to do that. So that's all being worked on at the moment. And, and early next year, we'll finalise exactly where we're going to fly into in the, in the US. All right. Are, are your pilots unionised, Stuart? Uh, we we recognise that the right of any of our, our, our pilots to uh, union representation. So, uh, uh, yeah, of, of course. Evan? Um, it's a uh, checkered history, um, Kieran. Like it'd be impossible to answer that question either way without being sued by somebody. <laughs> right, um, Evan. Is it the case that all of the flights that are currently operated by the various airlines uh, from Ireland to the US um, is it, would it be the situation that all of the airlines would recognise unions? Um, no, uh, that's not. Uh, what well, what I would say to you is that there are certainly airlines who have. Uh, they don't recognise a formal union, but they would have what, what we call accepted bodies within the union, where the, you know staff associations. That it wouldn't be the case that every uh, airline on the North Atlantic at the moment recognises a mm. formal trade union as in under the definition of the Trade Union Act. No? Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, they've had their authorities now from the United States are planning to um, launch yeah. these routes next year. So, yeah. is that it? Uh, no, in, no, in I, I don't. I think it will get interesting if, uh, as has happened there lately, there was an entirely uh, a Thai crew uh, flew from Oslo to the US there lately, and the picture was widely circulated in social media. I, I think it, with the new administration, it'll be interesting to see if Norwegian do go as far as they threatened to go when they first started this uh, this this application back a couple of years ago. It, it'll it'll be interesting to see because I do know in in Washington on both sides of the aisle there is considerable concern about like if Norwegian behaves like a normal carrier and they use people who are employed on US or EU contracts, then things will be okay. But if there is substantial evidence that that is not the case, I'd say it could get interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Is this not just part of globalization? This yeah, it, it, it is, and and I think that's what's happening um you know and i accept i accept globalization i accept uh you know that, that we all have to face up to it and and you know i've traveled throughout the u.s uh, you know i recently had a conversation with a very successful businessman in the u.s who who voted for trump and all the people he fired uh, because he moved his operation to china also voted for Ch trump uh, and because uh, they were angry that they lost their jobs and they blamed Obama and he was delighted because his taxes are coming down and he doesn't believe he'll be hit with a Chinese tariff from, from Trump. So I, I'd say there's a, a lot of things in the mix at the moment here on and I don't know where it's going to end. But, it, but, it, but ordinary people 
are now starting to hurt and I think the Irish Independent and their pensions oh, is just so a start We won't go down that road uh, on this uh, segment um, Stuart uh, you've chosen Cork and Shannon for your routes people in Dublin might be wondering if you're planning to offer these low cost fares transatlantic fares from Dublin Airport yeah, entirely possibly. I, I think we've openly said that, that our, our immediate focus is Cork and Shannon. But, you know, we have this permit. We have a huge aircraft order coming in place and an ambitious growth plan. So so I'd never rule out other airports. But Cork and Shannon are the priority for now. And we hope to have those flights in the air next summer. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Jim Power, Mark Paul, Suzanne Lynch, Barry Halloran, Evan Cullen and Stuart Buss. Declan Connan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.